pledge allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, not as though your kidney or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now, if you don't Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys would have it. Welcome to Movies at Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and today's special guest, I have a friend of mine who's returning to the co-host seat, and he was here to talk about The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. Back about, it was about a year ago, actually. I think that episode came out the end of September of 2019, and this one will be at the end of September 2020, and that's my friend Aaron Kahn. Welcome back, Aaron. How's it going? Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, anytime, anytime. And Aaron, um, as we talked about last time, you are the host of the Albums Uncovered podcast, which is a podcast that I, I frequent. Um, I recently, in my Pink Floyd journey, as some of you may have heard about, I, I recently went through all the Pink Floyd albums from beginning to end and tweeted a review on them. You did a really, really outstanding, very well-researched episode on The Wall that was sort of my companion because I, I was... I had purchased the album and I had I'd gotten the CD and obviously I knew the, the big hits, but I hadn't really ever listened to the album and I found myself liking it. Okay. But it was a lot to digest. So your podcast, the episode in particular definitely helped me to, you know, understand it a little bit more and, and process the album. So that was, that was really great. I wanted to give you a lot of kudos for that. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the the November of 2019. Those two, I, I mean, I did two concept albums, which I, I gave myself as much time as possible mm-hmm. uh, for those because both of them, for me, um, as far as with the concept album, and I lay this out in my episode on "Welcome to My Nightmare" by Alice Cooper, mm-hmm. that I think there are three kinds of concept albums. There's um the themed album. Mm-hmm. which is like all the songs that revolve around a theme. So like Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, that's all about the everyday life of a man. And you have the rock opera, which tells a certain story. Events uh, are like told in every song, like from moment like to Almost moment. like a narrative kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. then, and then that's what I thought it always was. I'd always thought there were two, but no, there's, I think there's a third and that's the loose narrative. Mm-hmm. Like a story's just laid out and you're left on your own to determine what's what's going on in the story yeah I, that's, I, the way I, that's the way i see it with, with uh, the wall and um the lamb those oh, are yeah. those are both that i would say that are uh rock operas for those unaware albums uncovered is the podcast version at least this is a uh revival of what i did in college hmm. And um, what, what the show in college was basically uh, the manager over at WRKC, which was the radio station at King's College, Sue Henry, came to me with the idea. And the funny thing was, was that I was already doing this in uh, blog form. Like she just said, what oh, if we okay. did a show? You just did albums and they were all turning, you know, 40, 45, 50. And I said, you know, I'm already doing that in blog form, but yeah, I'll do it. And I always saw podcasting and I just thought, 
once I see that something's too much work, I just go, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> yes, I, I know. I just, I just, no, I'm not doing it. But then after a while, I saw how the Rock Solid Muppet episode went and how the uh, feedback was that that four was or yeah. the way that came out. I was making money with goodwill and I'm just like, wait, this might be easy to do. I just do it on a budget. So I slowly tried planning it. And with me, you know, yeah, I consider this me doing a revival or reboot. You know, I'm not, I don't want to change too much of anything. So that was my only way to work around it. I don't know how many people actually pause and play it, but I, it just makes me happy to have it there. I think I did for some of the songs in the wall, not all of them. The ones okay. that I that I was a little bit maybe more um, perplexed by <laughs> were the ones that I that I went back to. Um, but but going along with that, having that in college as well, I mean, your passion for this really comes through, and I'm sure that having that makes it a lot easier to do this podcast and makes it feel like less work. Because I know just from personal experience, I mean, this is a lot of work. What you know, doing this right now, having to you know get the get the equipment put it all together prepare stuff get the notes together um you know set up times everything like that editing all that stuff it's it's a pretty big undertaking but but if your heart is in it then it doesn't necessarily feel like work all the time and to be honest with some of the shows when i start them depending on what album it is i do sometimes i do sometimes think of it like oh i gotta start doing research for that yeah. <laughs> like I really don't feel like doing it, but then by the end, I'm happy that I did it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, there's just like some albums where I am just like uh, any Bob Dylan album. <laughs> that That is, it is just so, because so many people have said so many things about his stuff. Yeah. I just work myself into a tizzy just go because I want to make sure that everybody is happy. Right. And I don't right. know how many people um, are listening to it and are going to tell me no the songs about this that or the other i'm just reading whatever i'm researching here well that that's really awesome i'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of your show and i encourage everyone to, to check it out and see what albums are available there and, and listen along because it's it's fun so um so aaron you are here tonight to talk about almost famous which is really it's speaking of anniversaries this movie's turning 20 this year and I think this, the, the month of September, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, it's a movie I have not seen probably almost since it came out. It's been years since I saw this movie. And um, and I had a few people who asked me to possibly do this movie. And um, there was not really much response you know, in return, you know, I, you know, I would say, sure, come on and, you know, let's set up a time, but nobody really responded. So that worked out in your favor because I, I, um, I'm really, really happy that you're the one who decided to do this because this movie, from what I understand and from what we've been, you know, over the time I've gotten to know you, this movie seems to really, um, be very similar. The, the main character's arc in this movie um, of wanting to be a, a journal, a rock and roll journalist, music journalist, very much mirrors your own kind of life journey, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, um, that's why I really wanted. I thought, okay, next episode I want to do. If I ever come back, I would like to do Almost Famous because mm -hmm. it just ties in uh, perfectly with what I've been trying to do. 
for, it's crazy to think that it's almost, I mean, the year that it came out, that's when I started getting to the whole classic rock thing. And that's when the mm -hmm. Beatles one came out and started the whole thing. So it's, uh, I don't know if I ever, I, I mean, I, tr I think there were times I wanted to be a musician. I did take some guitar lessons, but again, the whole thing of, you know, if it's too much work, then, you know, I, I just give up on it. But I just found myself liking, like writing, just putting the yeah. two things together, uh, just researching about these bands and writing about them. I was able to, um, you know, mm -hmm. put those two things uh, together and find out that there was uh, such a thing as being a music journalist. Yeah. Now, did you see this movie when it originally came out? Like, did it play a role in your interest in becoming a music journalist? Uh, here's the thing. Um, I was about uh, when it would have come. I turned nine in um, oh, okay. 2000. That's so, true. We, I um, always forget how young you are. It's, it's, a, it's a common <laughs> a common theme in the, in, the, in our podcast community <laughs> is that Aaron is, is the youngin of the group. <laughs> Yeah, I was nine when it came out, and um, or yeah, eight or too nine. young to watch this movie. Yeah, I got some stories about my first my first memory of knowing about this movie's existence. Uh, mm. uh, total, I I I remember like channel surfing like when I was really young, and it was like on one of those tabloidy shows, Extra Extra or Access, uh -huh. All Access Hollywood. Uh, they showed a clip from the movie with uh, the one. Uh, the one where um, Penny Lane is asking um, William um, how old he is. And then it just goes back and forth. Me too. Me too. So I just saw oh, that. Yeah. I remember seeing that clip on a show and just thinking, okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know what, what it was from, or I, I just remembered that clip vividly and uh, not knowing what movie it belonged to. Now, as far as me first hearing or knowing about the movie, it would have been either in 2001 or 2002. I'm thinking 2001 because that was just a year right. That was a year after the movie came out. And uh, I had known uh, at, by that point I was getting into the Stones. I was already getting to a bunch of rock bands by that point. Uh, but then by 2002, I was already you know, watching things on VH1 and already had like a well, uh, I was all well versed in some stuff already. Yeah. So um, yeah. I'm thinking if of any of those two years, I'm pretty sure it was 2001. If not, then it was 2002. Mm -hmm. um, it was around Christmas time. Um, my dad's, my, my paternal grandparents uh, took my sister and I over to, uh, a house that they used to own in the Poconos uh, was mm. a part of Khan family, but yeah, it was 2001. We went there. My grandparents took us there, mm. and um, I remember that one day when we were there, um, the movie was being shown on one of the premium channels. Oh, mm -hmm. I think it was like HBO or maybe HBO Showtime. I don't know, probably HBO. Mm. But uh, yeah, there was just I just my memory's a little fuzzy about it, but I just remember this movie just coming on like my grandfather just turned on the tv and there was this movie on uh, over in the kitchen that was all about musicians and rock and roll so uh just to describe the layout of the place because one of the other things we had was a 
those old fashioned phones where you have the the the, the receipt the, the the ear on the one hand and you have to speak into the oh yes on. yes those are cool yeah well we had one there was one in the kitchen that was mounted on the wall so you had to hold it there and then just that was the only one where you could dial a number there were ones in the other bedrooms uh one that i think <laughs> that used to be my there was a I guess it was a guest room, but I guess that was my uncle, and my dad's room oh, back okay. in the day. That was their room. They had one there too, but you couldn't dial a number in there. But I remember the movie being shown on the in the kitchen. There was the phone mounted there. And the reason why I mentioned that is because uh, around that time, I guess my mom called, or uh, my grandparents decided to call my mom and uh, sit. And I guess she wanted to know, oh, how are things going? Oh, things are fine. You know, they're they're talking. And um, I really wasn't, I, this movie that was being shown, I didn't, I mean, I was already seeing, you know, that I don't know how my mom's going to feel about me watching this. So, yeah. I'm just, <laughs> so I'm just like, could you ask my mom? So then um, my grandmother says, uh, Aaron, pick up the phone and the kit. your mom wants to talk to you. So I pick up the old fashioned phone. I put the speaker to me and I go, hello? <laughs> yeah, you're not watching that. <laughs> it's rated r yeah that sent me watching. right back into the movie when his mom's calling him when he's on tour and be like you said you were gonna call me every day <laughs> i just have this image of watch i think it was the scene where uh david bowie's version waiting for, uh, for the man is playing yeah yes and the group is getting naked and, and i i remember that scene being shown on and my mom's i just remember picking up the phone well yeah uh you can't watch it. That's okay. great. <laughs> but over the years, um, people would tell me, you're just like that kid in Almost Famous. You're just like that kid in Almost Famous. Um, I definitely like, was thinking that when I was watching. I'm like, I can see where how Aaron connects to this because he he definitely has a little, a bit bit of Aaron Khan energy to him. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, I just kept, I remember hearing it from time to time where people would just say, oh, have you seen Almost Famous? <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I still couldn't, I, now the first time I watched the movie was in 2006 when I was in eighth grade. My mom decided that I had to see this movie, that it really would connect with me, but she had, but as she would usually do with, uh, R-rated movies, she had to preview it first, Right. which I would never, ever do with, I mean, the other, only other movie I really did it for her, I mean, she didn't. I don't know who insists. I don't know if I asked. I don't think I asked her. I think she just said, "Okay, well, what we're going to watch Almost Famous." I don't know if she had seen it before. Oh, okay. So she said, "We're going to we're going to watch Almost Famous one night," and I just said, "Okay." <laughs> so, um, and uh, she previewed the movie, and she was saying, "Okay, you, you you can watch it." And I remember the only other movie, the only movie I remember her asking the preview was uh, "The Spinal Tap," which she gave a pass, um, but. <laughs> I would ne- I would always get scared of getting movie star because uh, uh, all due respect to my mom, but she's very sensitive about the things that she sees in her movies. She's oh, not uh, she does not like uh, the premium yeah the the premium channels and the shows that they show with the violence and cursing. Yeah, um, yeah. she does not like it. She does not like TVMA. Uh, that's just her style and. Uh, uh, she just doesn't like that. So I remember I watched it. My mom watched it and her boyfriend uh, watched it with us. And um, mm-hmm. 
after watching that, it just gave me a feeling like, wow, I want to do that. Yeah. It was just like so inspiring just to watch that and see that. Yeah, I, I, I want to do that. That's what I want to be. It definitely does, does glamorize mm-hmm. that lifestyle a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wait. there's some stuff that isn't um, acknowledged. I remember not too long before watching the movie again, uh, there was a, I saw a one-star blue review on the Blu-ray. Oh, wow. And somebody oh, just put, um, oh, this movie's terrible. I worked in the business, and this is just terrible. It's all glamorized. I'm just, please. Yeah. I could, just I could see where people are coming from if, if they yeah. want, like, a warts and all you know, depiction of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. This is not the movie for them. I mean, there is that stuff, but it's all very, you know, it, 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 it is a little bit safe in that regard, but I, you know, but it's, but it, that's a little, that's kind of an unfair review <laughs> to think of it that way. I think to, to you know, to, yeah. be, to give it one star just because it was, you know, pulled some punches yeah, here and there. The oh yeah. The record labels used, the record labels used underage girls to get it what they wanted or whatever. Just like, okay. well, yeah, but you could counter is- that argument with the, the, you know, the Rolling Stone magazine used underage journalists to get what they wanted to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I watched it. And I think just from watching that, I don't know. I can't go back to my old, cause my old emails done, but I oh, remember probably. that, um, I remember not too long after that, I may have gotten in touch with him before that, but I tried to get in touch with um. I think I may have been, or it inspired me to get in touch with Bob Jackson from Badfinger. Oh, it was wow. my first, it was my first interview. And so, uh, yeah, I got in touch with him and he was nice. And nice, but yeah. I think that, I think that may have like inspired me to just like, yeah, I just went like, yeah, I want to, I want that to be me. But then I realized that, well, it's 2006 for one thing. And, um, you know, some of these guys are not like that easy, easily accessible, which is another thing that the movie um, shows. And I think it's pretty accurate. And I watched a movie not too long ago this year about yeah. uh, the magazine Melody Maker. Mm. And um, it's just crazy to think that there was a time when these rock stars were pretty easy to like get in touch with and yeah isn't that that wild that they were really had no qualms with just you know being out and about and security was very light (laughs) even though the movie does address that like you said in in a very comical way at the beginning after he gets commissioned by lester banks lester banks let me try that again after he gets commissioned by lester bangs played by the late great philip seymour hoffman to um get this interview from black sabbath and obviously you know he's this 15 year old kid who hasn't done this before trying to get trying to just walk in backstage oh i have an interview with black sabbath and you know obviously they're not gonna let him in and he tries and tries and tries and finally he he befriends the opening band stillwater and um they're what they call band-aids not groupies necessarily because that they're there for the music not there for the uh you know, for the party life, if you will. And um, that's kind of how he gets us in. And it, it's it's handled very humorously. Yeah, when I watched those scenes, I, I did note about some continuity errors in the movie. 
Mm. Uh, I mean, it's not supposed to be de- like in 1969. He's looking at his the, the LPs under the bed. Um, yeah, there's a copy of Joni Mitchell Blue. There's a couple of things right there post 1969, but it's like the yeah. smallest things possible. Just watch watch it for the story. Uh, Burn is playing at one of the part. Burn by Deep Purple is playing at one of the parties. Yeah, at least a year later, but yeah. it, it doesn't really matter because it, just let's just focus on the story. Right, right. That that um, scene with the records was kind of funny. The way he was like stroking Joni Mitchell's face and like rubbing, uh-huh. massaging the albums. I was kind of <laughs> giggling to myself, like, okay, <laughs> it's a little mm-hmm. kind of silly. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. As far as William, uh, he is very, very relatable. Uh, that. Yeah. That that's basically what what I've been uh, for God knows how many years now. Just that person who's keeping the set list during the concert, um, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get in touch with all these people, uh, trying to email them, uh, get in touch with them somehow, whether it be through phone or, uh, I mean, it's different. I mean, it's a different time for me because with me, I mean, there's, I mean, we have the internet now and uh, it's, I mean, in a way, it should be easier, but I mean, there's just those people that are like not that easy to access. But I, right. William is very relatable. Um, Definitely. In that, uh, in that, uh, yeah, th- that it's basically, uh, you know, although I don't know how I would have done with the whole, if, uh, the guys from uh, Stillwater had just told me to just, you know, piss off afterwards to whatever their manager did. I would have just gone, okay, okay. <laughs> I, just would have, I just would have given up. Yeah, I wrote about William. Uh, in this movie, uh, he is uh, adorable. Oh, that's a good uh, for him. He's, uh, even though he's like this do-gooder, he is a little mischievous. Uh like when he meets up, uh, I mean, the first scene when he meets Penny Lane, I mean, for, uh, one thing to mention about Penny Lane, played by uh, Kate Hudson, uh, mm. I just read before we started, uh, she was actually based on somebody that Cameron Crowe knew. Oh, wow. Uh, I cannot remember her name, but she also went under the name Penny Lane. And I guess that her group of people, they helped, they helped promote bands. Oh yeah, can, can and I have to I just throw this out there now since we mentioned the character of Penny Lane. My cousin had a daughter. Um, well, his wife, they, um, him and his wife, they had a daughter. Um, last actually, she's going to be two years old now, and they named her Penny Lane, <laughs> mm. which I thought was kind of cute because they, they're they're both big Beatles fans. So yeah, as far as with Penny Lane. Uh... The character is said to have been based on this person that Cameron Crowe knew when touring um, as a journalist for Rolling Stone, which is, we kind of forgot about how this movie came to be, but I'll, I'll describe William for now. Um, okay. For William, uh, he, he is mischievous. Uh, there is the scene where uh, he does meet up with Penny Lane, which he tells his mom, played by Francis McDormand, uh, who is great in this movie. One of my mom's favorite characters. Oh yeah. This movie. Like she gets a bunch of laughs in there and she, and he tells her that, Oh, he's going to the high school dance. Okay. Well, at least you're getting out. No, he's not doing that. He's going out 
uh, yeah. with uh, Wesley <laughs> Lane. Like, yeah, that's another part of me that would just go, no, I can't, I, I, I would never be able to, to, to lie like, right, right, right. Like that. Um, and he's just there's mannerisms of him like taking notes, um, especially when uh, there's the and there's the scene where um, uh, when uh, Russ Hammond uh, is electrocuted, which I oh, yeah. think was what which I think may have been I don't know if it's based off of Cameron Crowe's actual career at Rolling Stone, but there was an incident where a musician was electrocuted, uh, Les Harvey. From the Stone the Crows, mm-hmm. which is well known, uh, uh, but that's an, that's another thing. Uh, yeah, during that scene, when there's the whole argument with the with the thing, uh, the 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 management, and they're just spewing out f bombs left and right, and we cut over to William, who's taking notes of the yes. <laughs> the argument as they're going along on tiny little post notes. <laughs> um, and I mean, when he's in the bathtub with all the the notes around him uh when they have the argument about the t-shirt the t-shirt he before the shot ends he runs back over and takes the t-shirt mm-hmm. uh yeah the guy's like like he's on assignment here right and the, and it's and that really goes to show why the members of the stillwater band were not entirely sold on having him there with them and go, following them on tour because they were not sure of his intentions and in a lot of ways i kind of understand where they're coming from because they basically i mean i'm just thinking from their perspective if i were going on this world tour with one of the biggest rock bands around and then having this little pipsqueak you know forced to follow me everywhere i was going and write notes down and this and that i would probably be a little put off by that too to be honest with you (laughs) and uh i guess we can mention about uh william and what his basis yes uh, yes basis and the whole concept of the movie is that uh cameron crowe used to write for rolling stone uh he started writing for them i think when he was 18 years old Uh, to this day i think he's still the youngest writer that they employed Mm -hmm. and he got to just write all these stories with all these bands uh they're all on the the dvd that came out for almost famous i think it had some of the uh articles right there on the dvd which is kind wow. of weird now because now what? Because I, I can't imagine anybody on the TV just reading, <laughs> reading. Yeah. I think with DVDs were still, there were some times when they were like behind the scenes. <laughs> what are you watching? Where, oh, I'm reading an article <laughs> on my television. You would read articles on, on these DVDs. Right. It's bizarre. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was a new thing then. But yeah, um, yeah but he interviewed people like Neil Young, the Allman Brothers. Um, who else? Uh, Led Zeppelin. I mean, he just hung out with all these people. Yeah, and at um, such a young age, that's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then he, I guess, what happened was, well, he ended up doing some other things, like uh, going undercover for a, uh, uh, and ended up writing what became um, uh, Fast Times at Richmond High. Mm, yes. And then, uh, which became a movie, which he didn't direct, but he wrote the he wrote the book mm-hmm. uh, for it. And then he just became this movie director. And then um, he just had all this stuff lying around. And um, I think it was his then wife, uh, Nancy Wilson of Heart. Yeah. Uh, I think that just said, um, you should do something with all this stuff. 
and he just wrote this story about uh, that was based on his life as a writer at Rolling Stone. And yeah, it's uh, like a semi-autobiographical tale. Yeah. But they changed a lot of the details, which is probably for the better. But, you know, I think that's the best thing about the movie, that it's all fictional because it it had been if they had gotten somebody to play the role of Cameron Crowe, then they they would have to worry about, okay, who's going to play the Olman brothers? Who's going to play the guys in Led Zeppelin? Because that could have been disastrous, Mm -hmm. like to have it about a kid. with this, And that would have been Lawsuit City as well, I feel like. Uh Although I did read that the guys in Led Zeppelin, they they screened the movie for them because they're very uh, picky about lending their music to the movies. I was going to make a, <laughs> I was going to say, although they have no qualms about taking music from everybody else. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, yeah, that became the basis of the story. And I think that I remember that being impressed by, I think when I first saw them, I was just impressed that, um, that it was just taken from real life things yeah. and that it that really was like the best thing about it is that it's a fictional band although the there is an actual Stillwater, which mm. they which they did ask for permission which they allowed them to to right. use the name but um aside from that everybody in the movie it's all fictional although there are a couple of people who are real and they all had a part in Cameron Crowe's life. One of them being Lester Bangs, who you yeah. mentioned is by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, Lester Bangs, for those unaware, was a writer for Rolling Stone uh, for a little while and then he became the writer for Cream. Uh, just known for his, um, I guess, his blunt criticism. I mean, he's considered one of the best in the, in the, um, as far as music journalists go. Yeah, uh, he's usually considered one of the best, and like he is a his, very uh, influential. He could, but he definitely had no filter. Oh no, no he. I know one of the things that he wrote was um, how Metal Machine music by Lou Reed was the greatest album ever made. <laughs> and um, and uh, I remember reading like little excerpts of that, and he just said that it's right up there with you know, a lot, uh, Kiss Alive. It, it, and it was meant to be sarcastic. Right. It was meant to be sarcastic. It just like the guy was. Uh... He was a rabble rouser, as they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I was watching some YouTube footage of him. There was a clip of him talking about some stuff, and it just seems like there really isn't a whole lot of video footage from, of him. But I'm sure that Philip Seymour Hoffman had access to those clips and maybe talked to Cameron Crowe about what. Uh, Lester was like because by that point when the movie was made Lester Banks had died in the 80s yeah so um but yeah he does a great job at um oh yeah at uh, emulating um this guy he's only in like what like three scenes in the movie I think he's not he doesn't have a lot of screen time but he makes the most of every time he's on screen he's just electrifying Mm -hmm. yeah and uh I looked at uh I looked on YouTube for the clips and this is taking, there is an extended cut of this movie, uh, which I haven't seen, but I've seen scenes from it. And it looks like the whole video itself, which is all of his scenes in Almost Famous, uh, as far as Lester Bangs, the Lester Bangs scenes, I think it totals up to almost like nine minutes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it, his, it feels like more than that because his presence is so strong in the film. 
you know, and, and mm-hmm. his, his character is such an important piece of the, of the story as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the other thing, as far as bringing real life things in there, I mean, all the people at Rolling Stone, uh, Ben Fong Torres, the real life person. Uh-huh. Um, a couple of lo- locations that they went to are real or mentioned about. I, I remember like right after the, when Black Sabbath are playing their set, or at least there's there's some recording of them playing live up as Stillwater are leaving after their their gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Russell mentions about um, oh you should come over to California to the Riot House, which oh, yes. is an actual yeah. that is an actual location. Wow. Uh, it's the Riot House, but it was known as the Riot House because Led Zeppelin would come over over there and they they would just. Uh, as legend has it, just trashed the place. <laughs> that sounds and, uh, right on brand for Led Zeppelin. And uh, they were technically allowed. They were technically okay to. It was technically okay for them to do it because Peter Grant was paying all the money to have everything replaced. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, they take things from real life, but yeah, it's a fictional thing, but. Um, that's probably one of the best things about it is that they don't need to worry about like getting every, uh, I mean, they got Ben Fontoris and they got a couple people, uh, like Jan Wenner has an actor. Uh, they got like people portrayed there, but like not too many famous people there, which I think is was yeah. a good choice in their decision. Like the behind the, the scenes of- people were, were real. The, the, the magazine people were mostly, real people, but the ones who were the performers and the musicians were almost entirely fictitious people. So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the individual characters and the actors. Cause like I said, I hadn't seen this movie in so long that I had forgotten how many huge stars were in this movie and, and how, many, how many cameos. Yeah. 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 There's so many people that later became um, uh, bigger stars or known for other things. I don't know if I'm, pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, Jay Barchurl? Uh, Jay Par- Barchurl? Oh, Jay, Jay Baruchel? Baru- I, yeah, think yeah. I think it's yeah, Jay Bar- Baruchel. Yeah, Jay Baruchel. Baruchel. Yeah. Jay Baruchel's in the movie, and he's playing the Led Zeppelin-obsessed guy, who I think his name yeah. is uh, uh, Vic. Uh, he, uh, Jay, would later... Uh, go on to be in the cult uh, series that was only last for one season, uh, Undeclared, which was the same people who made uh, Freaks and Geeks. So, like, it, it, it's thought of it as its counterpart. Like, uh, oh wow, Unde- Undeclared was, or what? Uh, Freaks and Geeks was um, what about a bunch of high school students, and this one was about college students. Each of these se- each of these shows lasting for just one season, um, and he went on to do other big things like a. Couple of movies he did, I think the, the the How to Train Your Pet Dragon movies too. So oh yes, yeah. Um, yeah, there's like small. There's a lot of people that would become. There was uh, one in particular, if I can mention, that really surprised me. That I didn't even know it was him for probably half the movie, and it was the 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 basis of Stillwater was played by Mark Kozelik, who who was like a, he was like a huge indie folk and indie rock star basically he's not really a star but i mean like he's well known in the indie rock world he sang with the red house painters but now but what i knew him as was um he goes by the stage name sun kill moon and he has a couple folk albums out that i love um that i I, that i 
listened to when they first came out earlier in the decade and last decade. And um, I it blew my mind when I knew when I realized that that was him. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so that was a cool one. I mean, although some of these people were already famous by then, I mean, um, Jason Lee has a part in the movie as the as a, the the singer for Stillwater. Yeah, I mean, he was already famous then, but I mean, the guy had some more success when he was this is just like four years before uh my name is earl right so he really was almost famous <laughs> a lot of these people are actually almost famous <laughs> yeah that's actually kind of yeah I and mean, there's a couple of other people like they do get some rock credibility here like uh and kate hudson's the daughter of uh, one of the hudson brothers yep and goldie hahn and goldie hahn um so she comes from some rock credibility. And I think she married one of the guys in the Black Rose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she did. That's right. What was it? Chris Robinson, I think. Yeah, I don't know my Black Rose so well, but I do remember right. hearing some of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's she comes from some rock royalty. Uh, Bijou Phillips. Yes. To, uh, John Phillips. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, there's some people like here and there that all make appearances in, in the movie. Uh, I know Peter... But Peter Frampton has a small cameo. Yeah. I had forgotten that uh, as far as the women go, I've totally forgotten that Zoe Deschanel and Anna Paquin were in this movie. (laughs) And seeing them again, my face lit up like, oh, wow. I forgot you guys were in this. Zoe playing William's sister. Yeah, whenever I see her, I just go, oh, the sister from Almost Famous. Yes, yep. (laughs) And even though she was already known uh, with Frances McDormand, I always think of her as the mom in Almost Famous. Frances McDormand, yeah. yeah. What a, when, when, uh, when what 13, a wonderful performance. Yeah, when uh, Three Billboards came out, and I was trying to describe it to my mom as to what was, you know, I was seeing, or what mm-hmm. movie I was wanting her to see. You, you should watch Three Billboards. Uh, as Frances McDormand, you know, the mom in Almost Famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She well, she's the main character in it. Oh, okay. well it's funny because um so francis mcdormand uh, got the part of william's mom as as you mentioned and when they were on set cameron crowe's actual mother was always around and and kind of was keeping tabs on everything that was going on and um he had mentioned to cameron crowe had mentioned to his mom you know like leave francis alone let her let her figure out her part by herself she's you know she's a qualified actress you know don't get in her hair so he left, I think it was the first day of shooting, he left set for you know a little while. He had to run some errands. When he came back, Francis McDormand and his mother were sitting and eating lunch together, and apparently they became really good friends, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was kind of a cute story. Mm-hmm. And um, and just like a, just a, a note that I had about her performance is that's, that's a role that I think easily could have been a caricature. Or like a frustrating, oh, mom, you're such a boomer kind of role. But but she makes you care so much about her, even though, you know, she's, you know, she's a very conservative old school mom who doesn't want her kids to have anything to do with rock and roll music. And they have all those funny scenes at the beginning with the Simon and Garfunkel bookends album about how they're on <laughs> drugs and all this stuff. And it's it, it it's very silly. But but she really as the movie goes on and, and you start realizing that he that he's you know, that he's on uh, he's on tour and he's not prioritizing mom the way she was hoping to and he misses his graduation and everything like that. I You really start to feel for her. Like she brings so much depth into, into that part and, and 
and she was a character I never at the beginning of the movie thought that I would be sympathizing with. And by the end of it, I was, I was maybe the most emotionally invested with her character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, it's a great performance. Yeah. And some of the, uh, we'll talk about some of the interactions she has with some of the other characters. Uh, yeah. I guess a little later. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what other notes do I have? I, I put about Penny Lane. Uh, the great thing about her character, I, mean, I said that she was based off of, okay, yeah, she's based on a person named uh, Penny Trumbull. Okay. Yeah, and she decided to give her nickname uh, Penny Lane. She was a part of the Flying Garter Girls. Interesting, wow. Which I guess were the inspiration for the Band-Aids. Yeah. And according to her Wikipedia, it says uh, that uh, they uh, had matchbooks made with their name on it hmm. and just to promote themselves. And they went on to, uh, uh, they worked with uh, many rock bands, a three-year period. It says that later in life, she just, uh, I guess she just stopped doing anything for rock and roll world or uh, same stuff like, uh, so she got her bachelor's degree in business administration. Oh, wow. Competitive fan, competitive fancer. She does have a property in Oregon called the Rock and Roll Ranch. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm reading here that uh, Cameron Crowe uh, told her about, you know, there's going to be this movie and there's going to be this character that's based on you. Uh, she was uh, hesitant about it at first. Oh, wow. But uh, she, but they went ahead and did it. Or she, uh, Trumbull was hesitant about losing her privacy, but Crow insisted that the character be named Penny Lane and agreed to change the spelling of Trumbull to Trumbull. Oh, okay. And uh, she was a bit reluctant to have Kate Hudson perform her. Oh, wow. But uh, yeah, she later agreed that it was the right choice, and yeah, it got her a. Uh, Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress, and uh, she won the Golden Globe mm-hmm. uh, that year for the Best Supporting Actress. Yes, yes, and well deserved, I think. Hmm. Yeah, she's like the most. It's she's a really interesting character in the movie. That she's um, what I wrote about her here is that she's a great character. Kate Hudson yeah. plays her to perfection, and she just has this mysterious uh, nature to her that. She's just into, it's almost like she lives in this uh, fictional world where um, she has all these friends who are all musicians. And um, it's interesting coming from her. I mean, there's that one scene where uh, when she goes into the bathroom, when William's in there, and uh, William's just like saying, well, don't you have any other friends and she just says i just think famous people are more interesting yeah <laughs> like it's just like where is how does this person think right i, I love like, and i love that comment he the retort he has is where he says something to the effect of well usually i like to get to know somebody a little bit more before i watch them pee <laughs> mm-hmm. but but yeah mm-hmm. you that i actually had the same word in my notes to describe her mysterious because she really is she's She's a very enigmatic character. She's very she she's very um, spontaneous and open and free love, but at the same time, she's also very protective of herself and very reserved. And that's an interesting dynamic that she has. Yeah, and it's amazing that she has this 
personality that can light up a room. Mm-hmm. Almost like when they're at that party that uh, William goes to when he says he's going to the high school dance, and they end up going to this other party. And um, yeah, when she gets in there and she's what she says something like, "Let's turn this party to the on position" or something like. Yeah. To that extent, and then everybody's just all on board with it and uh I because think she like i that, think she she took that from um from her traveling right because she she traveled on planes so much it's almost like she didn't really have that was an interesting insight to her character when she said that line because that connects to later in the movie when she's leaving the tour early and then go to new york and they show her on the plane and she's reciting the um uh-huh. The yeah, the, the what the stewardess will say, you know, like make sure your seat is in the upright position, and so and and that was kind of an interesting insight. It's almost like she, because we don't know, we know so little about her and her background that that almost kind of clues you into well, maybe she's kind of to use a really bad pun, maybe she's kind of a rolling stone. Maybe she doesn't really have a family. She doesn't really have a place to go. <clears throat> so that's why she became part of that, um, the tour family. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and the case could be made that uh, she could be the most interesting or the most complex character in the movie. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many characters in this movie, but I think, and the way that the movie credits them, they put Billy Crudup, Kate Hudson, and even though I would think that he's the main character, William, uh, who's, his actors uh, only like the third or fourth one build. Right. His character serves as more of um more of like an audience kind of cipher. Do you know what I mean? He um uh-huh. is more the action centers around him, but he's not necessarily a a part of all the action, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think it's him, Penny Lane, and Russell Hammond. If there were three main characters in the movie, yeah. I think those would be them. Definitely. If if I I, I really there's only one like kind of complaint that I have about this movie, one one minor criticism that I have, it was that I I, I was, and I, I think this is probably from the fact that he was very green and this was his first, he was only 15, 16 years old. I, I didn't really love Patrick Fugit's performance in this. It felt a little bit wooden, but I, it, but again, I think it's because he was new at it. And in a way it did kind of serve the character in the sense of that he was, um, you know, he was so young and he was so overwhelmed by everything um, and he was kind of especially noticeable during the couple emotional breakdown scenes he has when he's, you know, yelling at when he's yelling at Penny and um, and she's laughing at him like, no, I'm not sweet. You know, <laughs> it, it did come off as kind of silly. But um, but I, but I, I didn't love love his performance as a whole. I thought he was good, but maybe not quite as as great as the rest of the cast. That was just my own personal opinion on that. <laughs> You might be onto something about him being new to this. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't find this out until uh, maybe a week or so ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a list from uh, Watch Mojo about um, uh, movie mistakes that were left in the movie. Oh wow! Hmm. And um, th- I think they did it before, but they they did another one, and I did not know about this with Almost Famous. Um, in the scene where uh, it's after the Black Sabbath show, everything's done, and uh, Penny Lane asks uh, William, do you want to go to Morocco? And uh, he says he says yes very weakly. And then he says, are you, she says, are you, asks, are you sure? Ask me again. 
Mm-hmm. Do you want to go? Apparently that was not in the script. <laughs> when he said, ask me again, he was really asking for his line again, but Cameron Crowe left it in there. Interesting. Wow. Huh. So you might be onto something with him being new to it. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it wasn't like it, it wasn't bad. He certainly, you know, got most of the emotions that he needed. I, I just felt, and it could have been, it could have been the character as well. You know, it just, maybe it was the way it was written. It just felt a little bit stiff to me. But I, I noticed, I think of all three, even though I told you that of the three characters, I think Penny Lane would probably be, I mean, for I sure. Mean, it, it was, no, it was nominated for an award. So I think that was like the standout performance. I mean, her Absolutely. face is on the, her face is on the poster. Right. Right. But, yep. uh, but um, with William, I was able in my last in this last viewing I had, I had I saw that William had a really great uh, character story arc, in that he really I mean it it the movie is sort of a coming of age kind of a movie, uh, and it's a unique one in that he's going on this he's going on tour with this rock band, and uh, there's a couple of, I, I made a bunch of notes with him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he has a. You did mention he has his breaking points uh, in taking the laundry, or that there's that one scene where he does <laughs> he does break down after knock, knocking on Russell's door, and he just you know spews out f bombs, and he just go he just cries right after there to show that <laughs> yeah. that you know like my mom would be so ashamed of me right now. <laughs> everything this is like the night after he lost his virginity, right? <laughs> I heard about that. Too I heard much growing that. up in one day. <laughs> there was um. There was a there was a Zoom reunion of the cast. Yeah. With all the famous that Rolling Stone did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I listened. I just to that. watched that this afternoon, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I listened to it at work for research. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And they they and I'm given that you uh listened to listened or watched it uh that uh yeah about that scene with the 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 uh, deflowering scene, there was some stuff going on behind the scenes with that one. That uh, the date was the date of the shooting was uh, what circled out on the calendar, <laughs> and uh, like like big marker or something like that. And uh, right, uh, the actor what what's his name Patrick uh, Patrick Fugit yeah Patrick uh, he was sixteen at the time right which. And uh, he saw what he would be wearing, which is which suits his character that he would be wearing tidy whities. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but the way that they designed it, given that he was sixteen, I think that's why the scene isn't as explicit as it probably. Uh, like if that were real life, it would probably be a very explicit scene. Oh, we, sure. But they, but they couldn't. But they wouldn't be able. Right. Especially I mean, if he group, was that age, you know, they couldn't, you know, if he had been oh, like yeah, over they 18, they would have probably gone for broke, but. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's just left as one of the, one of the groupies just lowers, what she just like goes, like she just what, like sits down like at, as if she's about to take off his underwear. Right, right. And then just goes black and then it's just like, it'll, it'll all come out okay. Yeah. <laughs> well. And then I, just cuts them just like in the bed right after them. And then. I almost like that more in that it doesn't throw it in your face. It leaves something to the imagination, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like a little yeah, bit of it, did he or didn't he mystery to it? 
Yeah, when he wakes up, he still has his underwear on, which, I mean, yeah. I mean, we talked about how adorable he is. I mean, a character like him, he, he would probably put it, he would probably put it back his underwear on right after it was on. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> or not so, even uh, take it off during. <laughs> so, um, uh, it speaks to and his so character. we've earned our explicit tag for this episode. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, the uh, the real eye with William, he has a real eye opening experience with the the poker game. Oh yeah, and yeah. Seeing, and seeing that, um, you know, they just traded um, uh, the group the the band aids uh, for for what fifty dollars a beer or something, mm-hmm. which they mentioned in that in the reunion that uh, what Cameron Crow was. Uh, but Cameron Crowe showed that to Billy Wilder, and Billy Wilder cracked up when Kate Hudson said, "What kind of beer was it?" Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, that whole scene is like you know that William. I mean, I know it's all fictional. This is a fictional movie; it's not real people. But I mean, if it if it were to happen in real life, I guess it wouldn't be that far fetched. But uh, with with William, that scene between he and Penny, where they're just debate like he's in the real world when she's just not in it at all. She's no. still in her fantasy. She's still in her fantasy world, and and then it just finally breaks until he reveals that they sold you to Humble Pie for fifty dollars a beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she, that's when it yeah reality crashing. Yeah, and she clearly has had some kind of history of insecurity. Again, you know, the little pieces of evidence, the little crumbs of evidence that were given throughout the movie that she has some kind of terrible past because then she that leads to her overdosing on quaaludes. Um which is yeah. Yeah, my next uh point here. Um I really didn't notice this until I was watching the movie. Um mm-hmm. William has a great moment for these next two scenes in which um which are kind of towards the end of the movie here uh when he sees that uh penny's off going by herself he immediately goes and rushes after her yeah and sees that she's overdosed on quaaludes mm-hmm. and immediately calls uh 911 and gets someone to come over now while this is all happened now yet yeah, while this is all happening, the graduation is yeah. going on, and he's missing that. Which I mean, you're supposed to get that. Okay, well, oh no, he's missing his graduation. But uh, the guy's 15 years old, and he's saving somebody's life. And uh, the graduation is supposed. To, I mean, whether you go to college or graduate school or whatever, usually graduation is seen as the end of like your education or whatever that you, you've now transitioned to adulthood. And uh, right then and like uh, that was his own graduation there and saving uh, Penny Lane's life. Interesting. And that's what I was able to, which is why I think it's great that they have those scenes back to back because they just go seesaw back and forth to them because that was really him like uh taking on the responsibilities of an adult there yeah, and that's then a really uh, good point i hadn't thought of it that way but that's really 
really good insight. I, I like that juxtaposition of the two scenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, uh, in the plane scene, mm-hmm. uh, when uh, everybody's just confessing the truth, uh, <laughs> William that. Becomes... that was one of the one of the highlight scenes in the movie for me. Mm-hmm. That was great. William becomes very uh, angry when he hears the term "groupie" used to refer to Penny. Yeah, and says that. Uh, you guys were all hanging out with Bob Dylan. And he says it like in this tone where like, Oh yeah, big deal. You want to see Bob Dylan, which uh, somebody like a kid like him would have loved to have sat down and hung out with Bob Dylan. Yeah. But oh, yeah. Uh, no, he was busy saving his friend's life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the word groupie definitely, sets him off because she makes it a point when they first meet to the, to explain to him, you know, no, a groupie is a person who sleeps with the band. They're more interested in the people and being around famous people. Band-Aids are there for the music and they're there because they love the vibe and the atmosphere. And so that was, he, he saw it as condescending to call them, a you know, to refer to her as a groupie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he goes through uh, quite the story arc, which is basically it's basically Cameron Crow, uh, or version of him, but uh, I mean, I can see that it maybe maybe some of the inexperience in acting that he was new to it maybe added to the role. Definitely, there there was the one the one line that in in that scene too that was probably funny in two thousand, but didn't quite land twenty years later. Was at the uh-huh. end when when he goes. <laughs> when they're all confessing their deepest, darkest secrets as they think they're going to die in the plane crash and that ends with guys, I'm gay. And they all just look at him awkwardly and then they survive and he's awkward about it. <laughs> it didn't really, I could see how it would be funny back then, but it didn't totally age real well. <laughs> that would have been the drummer. Yes. Uh, we, yes. Were all, uh, we were all cracking up when uh, we watched it. Yeah. That yeah. Night <laughs> Definitely. We were all cracking up, and I still get a, I still get a kick out of it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I could see how somebody would not be able to take it now, but yeah, it's just it was the kind of way they they um, it's framed as kind of like oh, this is something you should be it's embarrassed bad, by. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I could I could see how somebody could. Yeah, but but I gotta I gotta um I gotta say that uh, everything else in that, that scene was so funny and so well done. Mm-hmm. This movie's music, uh, I guess it's somewhat of um, a drama too, but the, there mm-hmm. are a bunch of uh, funny scenes in here, which make Yeah, I you gotta have that balance. Quiet kind of qualified it for the uh, best comedy or musical category for the Golden Globes. Yeah. Um, I could say, I mean, the soundtrack is remarkable. I, it's just, it's amazing he got the rights to all these songs. I guess a, a movie, I was reading that a movie's typical music budget on an average film was about $1 million. This movie had about a $3.5 million music budget. So he wow. definitely made huge use of that. I mean, unbelievable soundtrack. Yes, Led Zeppelin, uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, like every everybody. It's a who's who. I think there's, how many Led Zeppelin songs? did you say there were there were three or four i think there were two there would have been three had they been allowed to use stairway to heaven okay i feel like i heard more than that i know that the tangerine was in it uh tangerine's that, at the end that's the way was in it i think that's the other one okay 
Yeah, for some reason. Um, and also Cameron Crowe's favorite, personal favorite scene in the movie uses one of my favorite Cat Stevens songs, The Wind, when she's dancing by herself in the uh, auditorium in Cleveland. It's very brief, but it's a really beautiful sequence. And that's one of my favorite I think, songs. I think they were talking about that in the uh, in the reunion call. Yeah, yeah. That it's longer in the that it's longer in what they the the, uh, the director's cut is called the bootleg mm-hmm. cut. And uh, yeah, Led Zeppelin would have had a third song. Uh, I did see it. I I did not watch it just recently. I did see it within the last few years. Um, yeah. Uh, there is a scene where uh, they try to convince uh, William's mom in that he really needs to do this. This is a great opportunity for him to be going on tour with this rock band, you know, great career opportunity. Yeah. And to sit down and convince her. They listen to, <laughs> uh, and by they, I mean, uh, William, I think his guidance counselor I think it's Sky. Yes, yeah, I believe so. And then some, and then some uh, I don't know, pothead of, of a friend or some some druggie of a friend uh, sits down with them and they all listen to the full song, mm-hmm. which uh, they couldn't use. And even in the, the bootleg, I read on my, uh, there there are some people online who have uh, they added uh, "Stairway to Heaven" to. They added the song to the scene. I think I read on Wikipedia that for the DVD when you had it, it, there was a screen prompt to tell you when to play it. Oh, yes, yes. I was reading about that. Yeah. And then that's when it cuts to her going, no, 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 no. You will not miss a test. Mm-hmm. And the, not miss that. And then, okay, you can do it. And then that's when he hugs her, Yeah. which is that that's what it cuts to, which I think, I mean, I can see where they were trying to go from with listening to that, to have them listen to this I ever listened to the song, but I mean, that's like, like eight minutes of a movie. I, I don't know how many people, yeah. <laughs> I, I, think people I think they made a good decision in uh, keeping that out of the movie, even though, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can see why, uh, it would have been, it would kill uh, the pacing of the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just best to have it. And you don't even know. I mean, it's shot there. Where you, the way it is in the movie, it's left the way. Uh, it's still left as the extended scene is. So there's two other people in the room, and we just don't know about it, which is kind of funny. But yeah, no. That if you're any kind of rock and roll music fan at all, and you have not seen this movie, you have to simply on, on the basis of the soundtrack. And like I, I, we didn't even mention the iconic tiny dancer scene on the tour bus. Like that, if My anybody remembers, any, oh yeah, if anybody remembers anything from that, from Almost Famous, it's that scene. Yeah, I think um, what was it? I think this. I saw it. It was kind of. This was kind of embarrassing of who who uh, tried to parody it. Parody it. Mm-hmm. I think they just it for the last season of American Idol. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just all these singers like. And they're all on the tour bus, and it's styled like almost famous. And I'm just no, oh. no, no, no. Which no, is no, also no. on the nose again because everybody who's on American Idol is, in fact, almost famous. <laughs> One of them is almost famous, anyway. The winner. <laughs> nah, nah. Yeah, and the scene uh, with Tiny, since you mentioned it, uh, the lead up to it is great. Yeah. When you think about what led to this moment happening. Mm-hmm. And what 
really, it's funny to think of what led it all to happening was they had a fight over the t-shirts. Yes. <laughs> and just the two, uh, Jason Lee and uh, Billy Crudup's characters just arguing back and forth and back and forth. And then, well, he's going to say one thing that he's going to say something. Your looks are becoming a problem. All right. Well, uh, you know, Russell doesn't want any of this, so he wants to be with real people. Mm-hmm. So uh, he thinks that uh, William is real, so they go out and find something that's real, and they end up at a party where um, we had the fun- one of the funniest scenes in the movie where uh, uh, Russell does acid, and uh, uh, his he wants his last words for Longstone to be, uh, I'm on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> And I like how how he gets an audience resp- like he has like a what is it like a um like a audience meter. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yep. Like like okay, okay, okay. How about this? I dig music. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, right. I'm they're on. like they're like it, judging how his words are. <laughs> and then uh, yeah, seeing William just lose it and just like everybody's jumping in the pool and then I guess it cuts to the next day when he's just, they have to get him back. So I guess they stayed there overnight or they just stayed up all night, I guess. And they, right. Well, it was uh, probably early morning when the whole pool thing went down anyway. So it probably was only like three or four hours later. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, they bring him back to the bus and then everybody's just dead silent. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they start singing. Yeah. And they come back together for what bonded them in the first place, which was the music. Right. Exactly. Yes. Now, interestingly, um, that pool scene in particular, um, Cameron Crowe, when he was um, when he was working for Rolling Stone back in the day, one of the bands that he toured alongside with was the Allman Brothers Band. And Greg Allman himself has said has gone on record saying that there were a number of incidents in this film that were taken almost directly from experiences that they had touring on the Allman Brothers band tour. And that pool scene he mentioned was one specific thing that he remembers happened pretty closely to how it happened in the movie and with Greg Allman being the guy on the roof about to jump in. Uh, I I heard of another, I didn't know that was based on him, but I heard another story that, he was also the one that was the inspiration for holding back the the, the part in the story where uh, the band uh, recants or denies uh, William's story. Mm, yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. And then uh, I think the whole story was with Greg Allman that I think he now it's coming back to me now. He's he took uh, Cameron Crowe's tapes or something like that, and then he gave him then he gave him back. Or, or something like that. I, I think that part of the movie was also inspired by yeah. like his time with the. That's a really shitty thing to do because I mean we he finds out because his um. Francis McDormand's character calls Willie at one point in the movie, and um wants to talk to Russell and you know basically says you know make sure you know treat him well you know he's only fifteen and that's when he realizes it sets in like oh this kid's only fifteen like he assumed he was older he acts older. It's kind of, it was a, a gag that was sort of set up at the beginning of the movie where he says that, oh, I'm only 11 years old because he acts older. He, you know, people think that he's older than he is. So he's able to pull it off 
that you know he could pass for 18 in his personality he he does look young but but that that really set set it in place for russell's character like oh this he's only a kid he's only a child but then to go out and do something like to sabotage his career you know for like a, a kid to do something like that to to you know purposely destroy his dream like that that's i thought that was pretty shitty and then for mm-hmm. Greg Allman to have actually done that, that's real shitty. Yeah, it's a good scene for Russell, too, although it happens kind of by accident with him. Although it, it does feel like there's a scene kind of missing there. Uh, it comes to a point in the in, at the uh, end of the tour party when one of the Band-Aids uh, tells Russell, well, we all know what you did to that kid. Saved Penny's life. Oh, yeah. oh really? Yeah, we all know what you did to him. Maybe you should call her and then uh, goes ahead and calls her. And then she's about to hang up until he admits, you know, that he's always liked Penny. He -hmm. wants to go ahead and see her. He got a pen (laughs) and then uh, he ends up at uh, William's house and asks, okay, where is, which is actually a very funny scene that she's at. He's asking, where is she? Yeah. (laughs) And his sister's standing there kind of like, you know, showing off a little bit. <laughs> and then uh, it's kind of by accident, although Francis McDormand's character is saying, I know we made a connection, Russell. <laughs> Just, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it isn't until he looks at the pictures that he realizes what house he's in. Right, right. But I, I guess that, but I guess that Penny Lane, she did that on she obviously did that on purpose so that right. he she, could she wouldn't re- right. she wouldn't forgive him or take him back until he took it upon himself to f- apologize for what he did to him. Mhm. And then it's right there when he's in the room and he says, "Oh, by the way, that magazine of yours, I told him everything was real." Yeah. Like when did that happen? Right, right. Well, yeah, I it, it did seem a little yeah. I could see what you're saying. Um because maybe should we take him should we take his word <laughs> at face value? You know what I mean? Like he could have just said that to him and not actually have done it because he wants to still preserve his image, you know? If anything, he called Penny and then thought he was going to see him. And then maybe he decided upon himself to go ahead and call Rolling Stone and say that the story was true. Right, right. I guess in the, in the grand thought- scheme, it didn't matter too much, you know, because it was just more about, you know, they, they, they've reconnected their friends again, you know? And there's another part where... um the last scene with uh, involving Lester Bangs when he's when he's uh, talking to him on the phone and you know, uh, there's the great scene of uh, Lester Bangs telling him you know we're all uncool yeah uh, it cuts to uh, William and at one point I never noticed this until I saw the movie I had to rewind it just to see wait did I just see that hmm. there's a tear rolling down uh, William's cheek oh yeah yep. Like, and then you look at his eye, like they're like very red. Mm-hmm. Like he's distraught. Like it, it feels like there was a missing part. I don't know if there's, there's something in the extended version. I wonder if that had something to do with the fact because um, there's a couple references throughout the movie, like at the beginning with his sister and later on, I think Penny mentions it too, how um, at the beginning, it's, it's like um, at the beginning, his sister says to him, oh, someday you'll be cool. And then Penny Lane, I think at some point said something about like, oh, 
you're you're not cool enough to be in rock and roll or something to that effect. And so maybe f- hearing that from Les- from Lester Bangs, he's hearing that again and being like, oh, I'll never be cool. <laughs> I d- got into this field so that I could be cool because I want to, you know, impress people and impress my sister, but that'll never happen. <laughs> I think he was saying, well, I think she said you're too nice for rock and roll. Yeah. But, yep, exactly. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it, it, but the sister definitely made a comment like "someday you'll be cool," and maybe that was him not f- living up to what she wanted him to be, or something. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, it's it's really interesting. Um, it, <laughs> one of my favorite lines in the movie is when um, it, when we first start getting to know Stillwater and their personalities and the, and the people in the band. Um, I can't remember which band member said it it may i think it was russell he's complaining about he's complaining about the fact that willie's there and following them around and like you don't know what this kid's up to he's the enemy and um you know the rolling stone they they did nothing but trash led zeppelin albums and they you know they're they're talking down about all you know all of our friends and everything like that they're they're the enemy we don't want him with us although it would be cool to be on the cover wouldn't it (laughs) to me that summed up everything about the way rock journalism is perceived in the industry right there. And it was encapsulated in that one line, you know, <laughs> like you can't yeah. please everybody, but you need them at the same time. Yeah. And then uh, the, what was it? The, uh, what was it? Uh, Lester bangs. There was a scene of him uh, when he told him about when he was talking on the phone with William. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what did he say about um, Lester said to uh, beware of Rolling Stone. They'll change your story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it seems that I was misinformed. I thought for you, I thought I read for years that uh, Lester Bangs lost his job from Rolling Stone because he left a negative review for the MC5. But mm. that's not true. Mm. Uh, that was I think that was his first review was a negative review for uh, Kick Out the Jams, although he did. Although I did read that uh, he did become friends with the guys in the band later on, and he did become one oh, of their fans. Wow! But uh, and there are a couple of times in the, I did catch a couple of times in the movie in in his house. You can see a copy of uh, their technically their second album, but their first studio album of what is it? Back in the USA. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it is on. It is on a. And he, there is one time where a song from it is playing. I think. Uh, yeah, there's a song from that album that plays later in the movie. Yeah, what a cool but, um, Easter egg. It, but um, and he is also wearing a shirt that says "Detroit sucks," yeah. which, <laughs> which is where the MC5 come from. Um, right. So yeah, that possibly could have been a little a callback or whatever, a little reference in there. Yeah. But uh, no, what got him fired was what you were saying that he was known for being uh, not very nice to the musicians. Mm. In his, review, in his reviews, which I think then got him freelancing for Cream. So a, a couple, a couple quick other things I had. Um, I wanted to just run back to the soundtrack real quick. One thing I had forgotten to mention that this this movie was responsible for introducing me to the early years of Fleetwood Mac because the one scene at the party they were playing uh, the title track from Future Games in the background, and um, and I remember reading that there was a Fleetwood Mac song in the movie somewhere after I had seen it years ago. And I was like, where would there be a Fleetwood Mac song in this movie? They would they didn't they weren't famous until the late seventies. And then I found out that it was like early Fleetwood Mac and that it was 
psychedelic rock and I was fascinated. So I went back and I listened to all their early albums and that got me real big into it. So thank you, Cameron Crow, for introducing me to Bob Welch. <laughs> I think I was um, happy when I first watching the movie mm-hmm. uh, and the scene where they're singing uh, something in the air. Oh yeah. Yeah. Thunderclap Newman. I yeah. was happy. I already knew that song before then because Jimmy McCulloch was in. Right. Yeah. That's uh, a great song. Yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted to run through a couple more interesting cameo appearances in the film as well. Um, Cause there, there were still so many more that, that it took me a while to realize when I was watching the film that that's who they were. For instance, one of them is Jimmy Fallon who plays, yeah. who plays Dennis, who was the, um, kind of like their manager to that they brought in later on to, who was a little bit more high end and wanted to try and get them more money. He was, he was fine. He was for me at first, he was unrecognizable. It wasn't until the, the scene on the plane that I, re, that I put two and two together. Like, oh, of course it's Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> it's I, I get the same thing with, with Billy crude up. Like I'm unable mm. to uh, like when I saw him in that reunion, I'm thinking, Oh, so that's how he really looks. Right. He he looks so like preppy, preppy looking in regular life that, you know what I mean? Like the button down shirt and the very, you know, his hair is combed all nicely. And here he's all disheveled and rock star and drugged out. <laughs> yeah, and the same thing happened when he was in Watchmen. Oh, I yeah. Mean, yeah. The character he was playing was, I mean, this was Miss, was Dr. Manhattan, who's this blue, who's this all blue uh, celestial uh, being. But the, I mm. think like, but the back. But his backstory scenes were, I think that was really crude up. And I think it must have been some CGI or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, the, the guy's voice just didn't seem anything like uh, Russell Hammond. Like, it was just like, okay, that's Russell Hammond. He's playing Dr. Man. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's so funny. And and also this brief appearances from Rain Wilson and Eric Stone Street from yeah. Modern Family. And Mark Marin too, was in it for a hot second. The other uh, cameo that I saw, like like for a second, when I didn't notice this until like I made, I think I'm right on this one. Um, you gotta watch. It's one of those quick scenes uh, when Williams looking for Penny, and he goes and looking through all the places and even taxi cabs. In one taxi cab, I think Jan Wenner is like reading the newspaper. Hmm. Really? Yeah, but it's the real Jan Wenner. Wow. Like, that I'm gonna have to go back and watch that now. That's that's yeah, wild. I, I think that's him. Huh. Mm-hmm. Were there any 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 other standout things you wanted to talk about? Anything else? I think we we covered a lot. We we really covered a lot of ground. This was great. I guess I can go a little into the the thing with Russell getting electrocuted. Yeah. Um, I'm getting the feeling that uh that scene may have been influ- it may have been inspired by um something that happened in real life. Uh to um, a musician by the name of Les Harvey mm. from uh, Stone Crows, who were like a, I think they were Scottish or English, or the, uh, they were a blues rock band okay. uh, managed, by, managed by Peter Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were fronted by a woman named Maggie Bell. Like there's different accounts of it. Like Dr. John had his own account of it. Like he saw something oh, else. Wow. But uh, they, they all had different, at one point, he was like uh, Les Harvey was in a. I don't know if he it was raining when they were performing or if he was in a puddle or I don't know what happened. But at one gig, he just was electrocuted and he was dead. 
Jeez. So I, I think the electrocution that may have made it that may have been inspired by it. Or uh, I learned another story about a year or so ago when I bought uh, Phantom of the Paradise on Blu-ray. Oh, okay. There was um, there was a DVD, and um, suppose they didn't mention him. They did not mention Les Hardy by name, but if you put the clues all together, it it all adds up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that movie, uh, Phantom of the Paradise, uh, they were already getting in trouble because um, the name of the record label in the movie was us uh, was supposed to be Swan Re- Swan Song. Oh yes, like the for Led Zeppelin, yeah. Yeah, but then they sued and said that, you know, you can't do that. So it became like death death records. And uh, once they saw the move, I guess they said that there was this man, they said this manager guy who was, um, who saw the movie and he was disgusted by one of the scenes and where a musician did get electrocuted on stage. Huh. And he wanted the movie to just be defunded or, or, or done with. And he put all the pieces together. Uh, it, it was Peter Grant. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah, it was Peter Grant c- complained because the Stone the Crows were his act. Yeah. So it just makes it. But they never mention him by name in this stuff. I mean, the, the original Phantom of the Paradise DVD did not come with any extras. I think these extras came from like a DVD released in France or maybe somewhere in Mm-hmm. Canada where the movie was really big. But wow. um I don't I think it was just a coincidence that that that, that happened. I don't think they were basing it off of anything. But yeah, I guess I could connect this to um what ended up happening with me as far as the movie inspiring me. Yes, please, yeah. Well this movie had a big uh uh impact on me. Although I didn't, uh, there's a, actually a funny story as to me uh buying the movie. I, I think mm-hmm. I only saw that one time. But I would always think back to it, like, oh yeah, remember that scene in Almost Famous, or like I would have exchanges with my mom, and um, I guess when my sister started going to the middle school I used to go to, uh, my older teachers were talking to my mom and saying, oh, I still think about Aaron sometimes, uh-huh. and I'm just think, and they're, they're like still thinking of me, and I'm just thinking, wait, just like the mom in Almost Famous. <laughs> just breaks out in one of her uh one of her classes and just says rock stars have kidnapped my yeah <laughs> and I just like what, what like that and just like I, my mom and I just had a laugh over that and and I th- that scene I do like it even though it's short yeah I do like that because it, it goes back and forth to these two people there uh a black guy and uh, this 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 woman who's like hastily you know writing down notes and uh the the one guy's just like what <laughs> he's just like he doesn't know what right. to think of like throws, throws him and, off completely the woman is just still writing down notes <laughs> sorry they right the rock stars have kidnappers so i would make like little references and just i guess i just remembered the movie very well because it had that much of an impact on me and it mm-hmm. it did lead me to getting are inspiring me to just get more interviews in. I'm trying to do this the email way. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, the next interview I had was with Yoko, which I told the story about, which uh, happened because of, you know, connections in my family. Yeah. 
But uh, I, I guess like getting out that, I mean, it did take me a little, I mean, my uncle had to have, have it laid out for me. Like, could you tell so-and-so that I want to interview? No, you got to go tell him. I'll let him know that you're going to go over to him. Okay. All right. Cause <sighs> that's nerve wracking. He, he just wanted me to do, he just wanted me to do it by, by myself and get, mm-hmm. and I did it. And, uh, you know, I got the answers back from Yoko and I was getting used to this whole thing. Okay. And then once my space became a thing, or I noticed that musicians were on there, I just went, Oh, I'll just message them. And the same thing happened with Facebook like with Mark Andes from spirit. I did mm-hmm. the same. It was just the same way to just get in touch with them. And um, one of them's kind of timely now uh, with Rudy Sarzo um, from Quiet Riot. Um, Yeah, I interviewed him in March for the 25th anniversary of uh, Metal Health. And uh, it was not um, the then 25th anniversary of Metal Health. And uh, he messaged me on uh, MySpace and told me – I'll get, yeah, I'll do the interview, but I, I do better with these things on the phone. Hmm. And I'm just like, I'm like, he's going to, he wants to do this over the phone. <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah, sure. Yeah. Call here. So uh, right. get, 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 <laughs> let me give so you my personal like, number. Yeah. So, uh, we set up a day and uh, I mean, I haven't been able to go back to it because again, in it was my first time doing, in my defense, it was my first time doing it. And he was so, mm. he was so nice. He was so, I think he knew that. I interviewed a couple people here and there over the years and, um, and got some help in college, but it just kind of like, I mean, I kept writing. I've always, I've always been writing. I I just keep writing and trying to get, you know, anything I can get a hold of and just, um, any, any experience I can get, I'll, I'll take it. I, I had some odd jobs after college i did try to do fiverr for a little bit but Mm. reviewing people's uh eps or whatever releases they had but uh i mean those years after graduation were i I had a bunch of odd jobs and there were times where i just didn't have a job i was doing stuff for my mom Uh before i ultimately got my job with uh goodwill um in late 2017 but um ended up happening was from my i've been watching survivor for years uh, my first season being Marquesas in 2002 when my grandmother just asked, do you want to watch Survivor with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I heard about it a few times. Just said, yeah, I'll watch it. And, uh, but um, by uh, 26, the fall of 2016, uh, there was a contestant named David Wright. And in his pre-show interviews, I noticed that that the guy was like very antsy. And I just saw that. Oh, I can kind of relate to this guy that like, he just, <laughs> like, he's kind of, he seems like he's kind of anxious a little here. And, and I read, <laughs> kind of thing. I just heard his, I heard his interview and he, I'm just like, well, what? And I saw his biography and I'm just thinking, this is going to be hard for him. Why do you want to be in the, why do you want to play in a thing like this? And he said that he wants to be there for the game and, mm. you know, he wants to do it, you know, to meet other people and, uh, or, I think that's what the quote or something like that was. So yeah. I just thought, well, I mean, he's either going to be like one of the first ones out or he's going to, I really don't know. And then I saw that he was, that he actually lit, he doesn't anymore, but he's actually based in, uh, he's, he originally lived in media, Pennsylvania, which is not too far from Philly. Oh, okay. Yep. Wow. It's not too far from South Jersey. So I'm like, Oh boy. I mean, if this guy, 
you know, I'm, I'm rooting for you a little. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what your chances are. Uh, I just, and uh, he became one of the biggest characters that season. And then um, after um, his first time on Survivor, or I messaged him and he replied back, and I just said, you know, thank you for doing this. You know, doing, doing the show. I like watching you this season. You mm. know. I too have struggled with social anxiety, and he was very nice. And uh, his whole cat, the whole cast for Millennials versus Gen X, were very nice people, and they kind of encouraged me to get back on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I called David afterwards, and he did a couple of post uh, show interviews, and one of them being Rock Solid with Pat Francis. Oh, stick around. So I just subscribed, and there was another episode the next week. Yeah, I keep following him, following it, and uh, I kept listening, and listening, and. Um, and then there were points when uh, Pat would mention that he was um, part of Pop Culture Beast, and he oh, was able yeah. to get things uh, free to review. And um, more or less, uh, for the last, I don't know how many years, um, I want that to happen for me. Can I get things to review, or can I be like an actual writer? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, get, and get stuff to review. So um, I got in touch with their uh, the the founder, uh, Garen, and he said, well, it's a volunteer job. You're not going to get paid, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll, I'll add you to it. And it took me a while to figure out how to work the website. Uh, you have to go to a WordPress thing. Mm-hmm. And I introduced myself in the group that we got. And um, Pat has been very helpful. He Eventually, I got around to getting free stuff to review. Nice. Um, uh I got a connection with Cherry Red Records, thanks to Pat. Mm-hmm. Um, another great experience for me relating to uh, Johnny Yoko, um, there was a DVD that came out, uh, the re-release of the Imagine, uh, the original Imagine movie mm-hmm. that came out in 2018, which was the first time it had been released on home video for forever. Yeah. And uh, it also came with the Give Me Some Truth thing. And uh, uh, it was coming out from Eagle Rock. And... Uh, I asked Pat about it, and he put me in touch with Carol Kay, which I happened to know her mm. already. And I just went, wait, that name sounds familiar. Years before, in 2011, I was trying to see if I could interview Eddie Trunk. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, that was her. That was his manager. So I'm thinking, oh, could wow. that be the same person? Could that be the same person? Huh. So I looked, and yeah, it was the same person. So wow. <laughs> I just said, oh, oh, Carol, we spoke a couple years ago, but uh, yeah, could you send me the DVD? And I think one of the questions she asked me, "What are you still with your station, Aaron? <laughs> I think, I'm like, ah, no, I graduated. I found out Pat through this, that, and the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can send the DVD to me. That's awesome. And I wrote a review, and I wrote a review, and I sent it to her, and she said, Aaron, this is beautiful. Oh. And um, it was ret- it was uh, the the post was uh, my review was retweeted by Johnny Yoko's Twitter accounts. Oh, how cool! Uh, the thing that I've been trying for the longest amount of time was to get into concerts, hmm. which is not easy. No, um, as the movie showed, <laughs> I, I I've tried I've tried to email people connected like. I've tried to start out small because like anybody in a big venue, no, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I worked around a way uh, seeing if I, I was experimenting with the idea of, oh, I don't need to be going to concerts with, you know, another family member. What if I just went by myself? I can't drive. I'm not, I cannot drive mm. on highways. So, um, but then it, why don't I just, isn't there Lyft? And I just went, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. do it. So I, I did Lyft. My first Lyft was going to see the residents. Oh, cool. Nice. And, um, and I thought, yeah, if I could get free tickets and just pay for the Lyft ride, this could work. Yeah. But uh, all throughout 2019, I was going to shows. I went to see Patti Smith, Ringo. Nice. Um, and then um, as I was recording a show on King Crimson for the 50th anniversary of uh, their debut, I'd already emailed in the beginning of the year. Uh, I was a part of a email chain mm-hmm. uh, after reviewing uh, a book by the band about the band, uh, a heavy psych band that was also played in the Ars Never Played show that I did for Rock Solid, uh, Bang. Oh, okay. And they had a, had a book of the Bang, uh, the Bang story or something like that. And uh, mm-hmm. I reviewed that book. It was very short. It turned out to be just, there was a story that was on their website about uh, their history. Mm-hmm. And when I opened the book, I just went, wait, this is the same thing that was online years ago. Huh. All right, so I, I read it. I went ahead and just read it. I mean, that was an easy read because I technically already read it before, like I don't know, like six years ago or something. Uh-huh. Like that. So, um, but I uh, because they were with Glass Onion uh, PR, uh, they added me to their email list. And when King wow. Crimson announced their uh, tour, uh, they were part of it. So I emailed back. I looked at the email back, and I just said, "Could I get in to see King Crimson now at the Met in Philadelphia?" Mm-hmm. And they said. And it's always the same thing with all these people. Get in touch with us when it gets closer to the event. Oh, okay. And it's just with me, I am so impatient. <laughs> um, I, I do not have the same patience. And I even questioned, can I really do this? Or do, can I just buy a ticket? Mm. All right, just don't, don't waste your... This is a completely different beast from doing uh, from doing an, a review on an album. Yeah. Just stick with that. But then I realized when i was i was sitting there in august doing the show on king crimson and they're coming to philly and i don't have a ticket and i said that i would email them in the the end although i was kind of like questioning if i really was going to email them or had any chance yeah but i i just went go for it at least that the worst that they can say is no all right they told you to email towards closer to the show yeah yeah so it's worth a shot i said hey uh, I emailed back in January. Could I get in to see King Crimson? I asked, uh, how many tickets do you need? One. Okay, you're in. Wow. So it, was like a week before, it was like a week before the show, and I'm just like, yay. Wow, that's a score and a half. Holy cow. So I had, so I had to ask them, okay, how do I get my tickets? you got to go over to the box office and mm-hmm. give them your name, and they'll have your tickets for you. Hard thing about the Met, and this was my third time going to the Met that year. So uh, I wanted to see if I could get in. Like their email was very generic, like uh, info at themet.com or something mm. like that. Like, no, no I, I want a person's name. Yeah. And I didn't, and I forgot to ask while at the box office, oh, by the way, who, do, who should I email for other shows? Like I wanted to find somebody to inter, somebody to ask for questions when there were events at the Met since I've been there. Mm-hmm. now for three times but i forgot to ask my question uh, so and i realized this and i realized this when i was sitting at my seat 
Oh no. Which was a good seat, by the way. So I went, all right, I, it's an easy walk. I could just go walk downstairs and I'll go talk to somebody at the box office. Yeah. So I walked downstairs and there's this whole swarm of people there that they filled up. And near the box office, uh, leaning up against the wall was David Frick from Rolling Stone magazine. So then I'm just like, do I go, do I go over to, and I just found myself just slowly walking over. I'm like, wow. Scared of I just went, Mr. Frick, my name's Aaron. We met a couple years ago. And, um, I think he remember. I'm pretty sure he remembered me. Wow. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure he remembered me. Uh, but I mean, there wasn't anything in their conversation to suggest that he would, I mean, yeah. he didn't say no, but, uh, and I mean, he did acknowledge when I was telling him things and giving, getting him up to date. Right. Right. And, um, this guy's bit hung out with Lou Reed and Metallica. How many then 20 year olds in 2012 come to his office to talk about music? Seriously. Wow. So, I mean, he had to remember me. So oh, I'm yeah. pretty sure he did. So we talked for a little bit and I told him, I'm, I'm on assignment here. <laughs> so I told him, I'm on a, I just said, oh, I'm here. I'm reviewing it for a site, Pop Culture Beast. And I told him the whole story that, you know, it came from a contestant from Survivor. And I just led me to a podcast. And now here I am. And then I just, and he said, okay, well, have you been here? And I said, well, I've been here two times before. I went to see Patty Smith and Ringo. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, we just had a nice little conversation. I just said, can I get a picture with you? <laughs> and he said, sure. So we got a picture. And I just, uh, yeah, I'm down here to get. I want to find out who does the, I want to get in touch with the people at the box office and find out who the manager is so I can get wow. into future show. And, uh, I, I, I think I thanked him and I, and th that was it. I went over there and I didn't, they didn't give me a name. They just gave me the generic email again, wow. but had I not gone down there, I would have not met Dave Frick. I so yeah, it's just crazy that all that, you know, just from doing all that work led me to that moment. Now, as far as Almost Famous, uh, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. Somewhere in my uh, at least top 20, top 15, it's yeah. uh, always an enjoyable movie. Uh, and it's one of those movies that you can just watch and you, you feel good after watching it. Absolutely. I 100% I agree. I, you know, it's funny. I Like I said, I hadn't seen it in so long. I wasn't sure how I was going to like it, you know, seeing it again all the, after all these years. But, boy, I'm really... Happy to say it's really just it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It's really, really terrific. And I'm so glad that I watched it. And I'm so glad that I watched it with it, having you on, too, with, with all of your insight. It was really, really wonderful. If there's any rock fans out there that have not seen this movie yet, then by all means, by all means, watch it tomorrow <laughs> or tonight. If, if you haven't seen it yet and you're watching this, turn turn this off and watch it because <laughs> it's 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 a it's a wonderful Wonderful movie, Aaron. Let's do some um, some promotion. Where where can people find you on social media and in the the podcasting world? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Aaron underscore Khan. You can follow Albums Uncovered at Albums U. Uh, at the time that this drops, I think I will be into season two of the revival of uh, Albums Uncovered. Uh, so, uh, Excellent. I, can you, I can let you know the first, I've already posted on my Facebook about the, the 
the rest of the episodes for uh, 2020, but uh, the the first two episodes for September will be um, Kate Bush, Hounds of Love, and uh, Neil Young, After the Gold Rush. Very nice. I'm looking forward to both of those. I'm going to have to listen to... I haven't listened to After the Gold Rush in a while, so I'm going to have to put... I'm going to have to spin it again before before that one drops. If anybody's curious, uh, you can read my writings at uh, on Pop Culture Beast. Uh, follow, give a follow to Pop Culture Beast and uh, just be on the lookout for uh, whatever I write for them. Yes, please, please do support support our our burgeoning journalists and our podcast friends. So please, please do that. Um, that that's awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron. So for me, um, you can find me on Twitter. My personal Twitter handle is at joshf618. The podcast Twitter handle is at rockmoviespod. Um, you can send me an email at movies at rockpod at gmail.com if you want to talk about anything on the show at all. Um, also, please, if you are a listener, please, 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 please leave a review. I know there's a lot of people out there. And this goes for Aaron's podcast as well, Albums Uncovered. Um, if you listen to either of them, give us, give us a rating, give us a review. Um, you know, if you want to give me a bad review, that's fine. But it even, but any reviews help people to find this on Apple, on Apple podcasts. So that would be much appreciated by, by both of us. So cool. Have a great night, Aaron. I'll talk to you later. Blue jean, baby, LA lady, seamstress for the band. See you.